You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're joined by an expert in Jewish ethics to discuss sexual ethics for today's world. How are our sexual behaviors connected to how we interact with people in society more broadly? How can looking at such things as STIs, sex work, sexual risk, and BDSM teach us about our ethical commitments? And what can the rabbis of the Talmud, writing more than a thousand years ago, have to say that could help us think about sexual ethics and sexual practices today? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting with friend of The Revealer and award-winning author for one of her Revealer articles, Dr. Rebecca Epstein-Levy. She is the author of the book, When We Collide, Sex, Social Risk, and Jewish Ethics. You can read an excerpt from her book in the upcoming November issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Rebecca. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? Hi, Brett. It's great to chat with you, too. I am doing all right. Um, I actually spent the morning uh, repotting my indoor plants, which was a nice break. Oh, impressive. I am a serial killer with plants, so I trust that they are much better under your care. Well, mostly I pick ones whose care notes are, you can neglect them. (laughs) wise decisions okay so so that our listeners know you're an expert on jewish ethics and you've written a great new academic book on jewish sexual ethics but one of the reasons i'm really excited to talk to you is because the lessons and your approach to thinking about sex and our broader social interactions can i think apply to anyone so that's where i'd like to start i imagine uh for many listeners at this point that um, anytime they hear anything about any religious tradition and sexual ethics, that the things that are coming to mind are things like, you know, you must be abstinent until marriage and then only sex within marriage. So can a Jewish sexual ethicist or a person who studies Jewish ethics say that anything beyond that or beyond monogamous coupling is acceptable or virtuous? And if so, how would that work? The short answer, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are two ways I could, there, there's sort of two aspects of, of expanding that answer I want to point out. And the yeah. first one is that, of course, and I know you know this, when when we talk about people's kind of knee-jerk understanding of what counts as, quote, religious sexual ethics, what they specifically mean is a very narrow subset of white, Protestant, and conservative Catholic sexual ethics. And, you know, in fact, they're, you know, depending on how far back we go in Jewish history, even sort of normative halachic sexual ethics, we get an act of rabbinic legislation from a fellow named Rabbeinu Gershom, who outlaws for Ashkenazi Jews polygyny, so men having more than one wife. What's notable about that is that he had to do it. Right. It it tells us that there was at least some kind of precedent, if not a norm, for polygyny under the auspices of normative Jewish law. So like there's so there's an historical answer there, which is to say that 
like strict monogamy hasn't been even always the letter of the law. But the sexual ethic I want to espouse is clearly not regimented polygyny. You know, I, I want to not just leave room open for, but like actually affirm queer sexuality, kink, non-monogamy, ethical non-monogamy of various kinds. And yeah, there isn't historical precedent for that exactly in normative Jewish tradition. But I think that, that thinking about, that using the particular lenses I use, that I draw, that I extrapolate from the intersection of lived experience and classical, unexpected classical rabbinic texts, gives us a way to think about sex as linked to other forms of social interaction, where in which we don't and would indeed consider it ridiculous to have the same strictures on who we can interact with and in what circumstances. I mean, to be clear, if monogamy works for people, that's great. But it, but speaking in universals, right? If someone said, you can only talk about these things with one person your entire life, and you've actually done, you know, you've betrayed that person if you have certain kinds of emotional intimacy with somebody else. You know, I think a lot of our listeners, if we, if we heard about that in a particular relationship would rightly identify that as, abu- as an abusive dynamic, right? And I, and to be clear, I'm not saying monogamy is inherently abusive, but I think I am saying compulsory monogamy is. And being able to take sex out of its iron box, I think helps us see that. That's a good connection to what I wanted to ask you next, uh, because you describe yourself in the book as sex positive. And I think while that's a term that is somewhat common, I'm sure many listeners have heard people say it, I'd really like to ask you what you mean when you say your efforts as an ethicist are to be sex positive. And then beyond that, what do you see as the implications for anyone who wants to be sex positive? I want to articulate um, an ethic that is sex positive is that I don't want to start from a position of being inherently suspicious of sexual expression or sexual desire. I want, I want to start from a position of assuming it's at least neutral and probably frequently good or has the potential to be a source of moral good. And I want, and I want to be careful here, right? Sure. Not to sure. erase asexuality or people on the ace spectrum. Um, when I say, when I say that sex is at least neutral and has the potential to be a source of moral good, that doesn't mean everybody has to do it, right? You, you know, I think that there are fairly strong arguments for any number of activities being potential sources of moral good, but not everybody has to do them. You know, some people derive a great deal of moral growth from rock climbing. I'm terrified of heights. Since we're talking about certain ways of being being compulsory, I also want to name that compulsory sexuality is just as harmful as sex shaming. I want to articulate an ethic that has room for people to be as sexual as they want and no more than they want. I, but I'm specifically driving the positivity bit here in some ways precisely in response to the dynamic you named at the beginning of the interview, right? The idea that religious sexual ethics must be more restrictive and more dour about sex and more 
give overemphasize the risky character of it and overdetermine its risks relative to those of other social activities and underdetermine its potential goods in the most expansive ways. So to that extent, when I talk about an ethic that's sex positive, I that is very much a polemic and I'm very much pushing at that. And I imagine for many people who come from um, homes or schools or communities where sex is thought of as something quite taboo, that that is, um, I'm sure, quite profound to hear, perhaps for the first time, that sex can be a neutral to a good thing as a base starting point. So I want to transition a bit and uh, ask you a little bit about sex work. And I think that'll help um, uh, sort of bring into the conversation this theme that you talk about, about how uh, sex can be a reflection of other things going on in society. So you write that, quote, consider the prejudice against sex work. There is something many of us, feminist thinkers very much included, find appalling about exchanging sex for money. But there are any number of industries with serious worker exploitation and human trafficking problems, notably agriculture and construction. Sex work is hardly unique in this respect, end quote. So why do you think we treat sex work as such a unique thing? And what is your recommendation for how we should approach sex work and I'm guessing other forms of labor? I use the sex work example as a demonstration of how we're so used to thinking about Mm -hmm. sex as something that is quite distinct from other forms of social interaction, other forms of social relation, including those that fall into the sphere of commerce, right? And I suspect that the idea of being particularly horrified at exchanging sex for money, both as a consequence of and then reinforces the idea that sex is something set apart and unique. Even, and you know, the philosopher Martha Nussbaum somewhat famously gave a list of professions that also involved selling your body and or some Mm. kind of intimate access to your inner self for money. Mm. Mm. And like one of the most notable examples she gave was that of a philosophy professor, um, which... You know, I teach religious studies, I teach religious, I teach religious ethics, and there is a significant aspect of what I do that involves getting paid to divulge certain parts of my intimate thoughts and to to lesser extent Mm -hmm. feelings Mm -hmm. for the benefit of others. Mm -hmm. Two examples that, if I recall, she doesn't use in that essay, but I think are actually illustrative nevertheless are that of a professional athlete who are professional athletes quite literally sell their bodies for the entertainment of others. And by the way, I, and that's not meant to sort of take that blithely. I mean, the more we learn, for example, about what seems Hmm. to be an epidemic of a sort of chronic uh, traumatic encephalopathy among professional football players, for example, actually should force us to take that quite seriously. I would also argue that being a clergy person is a way of being an intimacy worker. And none of those are exact parallels, right? But they do, but they do illustrate what Mm. carve outs we're willing, we're willing to 
sanction and which carve-outs we're not willing to sanction of our general ideas of what Mm. counts as acceptable commerce and acceptable labor. And the thing about deciding whether one form of labor or commerce is acceptable or not is other than us getting to feel superior, that has like a really direct effect on whether we actually fairly compensate people yeah. for their labor, whether we take their, yeah. the ways that they might be vulnerable to injury or abuse or maltreatment on the job seriously, because if we have decided, oh, well, that's inherently ex- exploitative, which I mean, yes, all wage mm-hmm. labor is inherently exploitative. Let's be clear. But if we decide, okay, well, that's an inherently risky and exploitative line of work, then that also becomes an excuse not to actually take people's experiences of abuse and harm seriously because they're assumed to already be in an inherently abusive and harmful situation. And so that's a place, right, where it's both demonstrative of the way we cordon sex off from other forms of social interaction, other forms of commerce. And it's also, I think, a really clear example of why it matters that we try to stop doing that. That's great. That's very helpful. And it's a, that's a good bridge to what I want to ask you about next, which are risks. And so one of the big things that comes through clearly in your book is you make the case that many of our social interactions contain risk, not just sex or sexual risk, but many of our social interactions contain risk. Can you explain a bit about that? the the risks that are just part of our social lives and what can that teach us about how we approach and try to mitigate sexual risks? So if you've ever been taught a passage of Talmud, there's a very good chance that it's one that's colloquially known as the oven of Achnai. And in this passage, the rabbis are in the Beit Midrash arguing about something extremely obscure, namely whether this a particular kind of clay oven is susceptible to impurity. And it's, every, and it's all of the rabbis against this one fellow, Rabbi Eliezer, who's you know, renowned as a master of law and interpretation and also has mm-hmm. a reputation for being quite halachically conservative. Mm. And it gets to the point where Rabbi Eliezer has thrown every argument at the sages. They won't listen. And finally, in exasperation, he says, like, look, if I'm right, let that tree over there, whatever, prove it. <laughs> and the tree uproots several paces. And his, the, the, spoke, the speaker for the rest of the sages, Rabbi Yehoshua, says, well, we don't reason on the basis of a tree. Okay, well, let that stream over there prove it. Stream flows backwards. That's not admissible evidence. And it goes on a bit like this until eventually there's a divine voice that says clearly, essentially, look, Rabbi Eliezer's right. What do you want from me? (laughs) And Rabbi Yehoshua quotes scripture back saying, it is not in heaven, essentially telling the divine voice, shut up. You gave us the law already. It's now for us. You you, you sent it down from the heavens and now it's it's for us to interpret it, but out. Huh, wow. And that that act of the story ends with a later rabbi encountering someone who's able to give an account that says, you know, and at that on that day God laughed and said, My children have defeated me. Hmm. And that's and when peop and when people are told the story, that's often where it ends. But there's an act two. Because what happens after that is that the sages choose to excommunicate Rabbi Eliezer to invalidate every ruling he's ever made. 
the thing is, the first act should have already told you that Rabbi Eliezer has seems to be in in the explicit and demonstrable favor of the divine. And hmm. so when he expresses his grief and despair over being having been excommunicated, there's like this yeah. automatic opposite and very much unequal reaction from the heavens. Like it's not premeditated, it's just kind of reflexive. And what happens is that, and look, when you're in Talmud, you're not in Kansas anymore. You need to just accept that weird shit is going to happen. <laughs> so Rabbi Eliezer starts setting things on fire just by looking at them. He, not, incidentally, and it's kind of glossed over in the text, but he causes like worldwide crop failures and worldwide famine by doing this. And he ends up basically accidentally killing the leader not not the same guy who was mouthing off to him, but like the political leader of the Sanhedrin, who also happens to be his brother-in-law, just by virtue of saying a standard prayer of supplication. And his, you know, his wife is aware, like, I have to stop him doing this. And she, at some point, for whatever reason, she's unable to eventually to prevent him doing it. And she finds him in the position for this prayer and says, get up, you have killed my brother. Hmm. He has. And he asks her, how do you know? And she said, I have this tradition from my father's house. All of the gates to heaven are closed. You can't appeal to heaven except the gate of verbal wronging. And then you actually get a divine response if heaven judges that you have been wronged in this particular way. Okay. And there are some things that I think are, I think that story is really demonstrative of how for the rabbis, because it's notable that that story is actually set in, in the middle of a longer passage about how much damage you do by verbally wronging someone, like it's compared to murder. And I think that's really demonstrative of the way the rabbis understood social interaction generally, hmm. and in particular, the kind of social interaction that was life-giving and sort of identity-forming for them, that of... Hmm getting together in community to interpret and debate the divine word, that story tells us that they're very aware that playing, they're literally playing with fire when they're playing with those words, right? These are words that do things, that have real effects in the world, that if they're not careful with them and with each other, there are serious interpersonal and global consequences. Yeah. And yet it's unimaginable for them to not be doing this because then they wouldn't be who they were. Hmm. To me, that's a really refreshingly humane and important way of thinking about the risks that we encounter in social interaction generally. Yeah, There's no way to interact socially without getting hurt. There's no way to interact socially without risking hurting someone else, even as we try as hard as we can not to. That's true regardless of whether genitals are involved. And, you know, the, there, there are many more specific ways to think about risk right. socially as well. I mean, we are continuing to live through a pandemic where we've, be, we've been made aware of the deadly or, and or disabling potential of sharing air with inadequate caution. Yeah. And so the lesson there is twofold, right? On the one hand, cordoning sex off from 
everything else allows us to make a claim mm. that because sex has X, Y, and Z particular risks, whether emotional or medical or what have you, mm-hmm. that that is, those are grounds to be especially restrictive about it. Mm. But it's also the case that by making sex the sort of paradigmatically risky thing, it also allows us, it gives us license to ignore the very real risks that are present in non-sexual social interaction, to not take them as seriously as we really need to. So one of my favorite parts of the book is when you discuss the uh, Talmud's rabbi's ideas about impurity and how you connect that to dealing with and thinking about STIs, sexually transmitted infections. So could you briefly describe what you glean from the rabbi's discussions about the ubiquity of impurity and what that led you to think about the pervasiveness of STIs and how we as a society should approach them? Sure. So like religious, right? Purity and impurity are also words that I think for a lot of listeners in the, in the English speaking world conjure up a very specific narrative of essentially evangelical sexual purity culture. This is not that. And like, I don't actually love using the English word pure words purity and impurity to describe this just because of the baggage mm, right. from that. Like, but the but the other translation option is clean or unclean, which is even worse, and like actually straight up inaccurate. Purity and impurity are sort of workable but really flawed translations of the Hebrew concepts of Tumah and Tahara, impurity, impurity, and purity, respectively. And really what ritual impurity for the rabbis is, and that's separate from moral impurity, but ritual impurity for the Hebrew Bible and then by extension for the rap and development for the rabbis is a metaphysical condition that is transmissible through certain forms of touch or shared physical presence that is treatable unconnected to sin and incompatible with physical co-presence with the temple and its holy things. And the really important thing to understand about it is in the schematic, everybody is constantly moving in and out of states of purity and impurity, right? It's not something where more righteous people don't experience it and less righteous people do. In fact, the strong, probably the paradigmatically strongest in the Hebrew Bible anyway, source of ritual impurity is contact or physical contact, or even just being under the same tent as a corpse. Hmm. Okay. And yet you are commanded to prepare, to respectfully prepare the dead for burial. Hmm. So commanded and morally praiseworthy behavior can frequently cause ritual impurity. The rabbis sort of expand the schematic even further such that we don't even think of, to borrow terminology from the rabbinic scholar Mira Balberg, it's less about even discrete sources of impurity like a corpse or a dead lizard or contact with certain kinds of skin eruptions or what have you. It's so much as we're talking about going in and out of different circles of impurity transmission. And the rabbis, I think, understand ritual impurity in the schematic as 
an undesirable but manageable consequence of various forms of desirable and even necessary social activity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One should certainly try to mitigate impurity. One should treat it when one even has the slightest inkling that one might be impure. One should be very careful about diagnosing it because different forms of impurity require different treatments. And like one shouldn't go out of one's way to contract it. But it's also understood that you're going to contract it. Hmm. And, and so the moral imperative isn't so much about not becoming yeah, impure yeah, yeah. as it is discerning what kind of impurity you, you have contracted and what the necessary steps are to mitigate it and just generally being attentive to the fact that you're in this impurity-laden environment. And that struck me as incredibly help- an incredibly helpful way to think of sexually transmitted infections. Sure. Especially because, right, STIs are often held up as an example of why sex is so risky that you should only do it in certain very strict monogamous contexts, right? Right. I'm sure many of our listeners have all sorts of high school health class horror stories to that effect. (laughs) I thought, and so I thought this perspective, this idea of socially transmitted contagion that we get from the rabbi's account of ritual impurity was actually a really helpful corrective to that because the rabbis correctly thinking with their paradigm points us in the direction of realizing that we too are always moving in and out of circles of potential infectiousness that just because someone has contracted an sti doesn't make them a bad person or a careless person right it makes them a person with a body yeah 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 yeah. who does things with their body in circumstances where they don't always have full knowledge or control of the various microorganisms that are present and what I think it does, what I think this lens does especially, is go such a long way to destigmatizing. Exactly. Yeah. It, to to stigmatizing STIs because and stigma, as you and I both know, is one of the biggest barriers to people actually getting tested and treated, and mm-hmm. you know, and curtailing and managing the spread of STIs that. Right. Unfortunately, you know, we're seeing resurgences, not least, by the way, because, uh, you know, both federal and state governments are being are continually restricting sexual health budgets. And I think that, you know, thinking about these circles of contagion very much points us towards putting more resources and less shame at the issue. Yeah, no, I really like that because I think it's a great way to, exactly as you say, reduce the shame that so often comes because it doesn't need to, that doesn't need to be the affect that is produced from just being a person, as you say, with a body who engages with others. That's great. So for our last question, in a world that seems to be falling apart from climate change, war, and right-wing politics... Why would you say we should be thinking about sexual ethics right now? Well, to begin with, right-wing politics are certainly thinking about sexual ethics mm. and in fact are <laughs> are zeroing in on on sexuality and gender as fronts of attack. Yes. Right. Trans people especially in the United States right now are 
are and have been primary targets for the right wing. You know, I would say to any of my fellow cis queers who think that they're going to stop there. No, they're not. They're coming for Mm -hmm. us, too. Mm -hmm. And we have every obligation to show up for Mm -hmm. our trans fellows, both because it's the right thing Mm -hmm. to do and because it's actually in our self-interest. So like that's that's the most immediate example. We have to we have to think about sexual ethics because they sure are. But I also think that in sort of the broader scope of things, like the whole, what I've been trying to argue all along, sexual ethics is also a way of thinking about what our obligations are to ourselves and to one another and how those obligations work dynamically when we are in constant relationship with other people with bodies hmm. and that those, those bodies have vulnerabilities and needs and thinking about how to be a good person sexually, a person mm-hmm. who is attentive to our own body and bodies and to the bodies of people we have sex with and yeah. their vulnerabilities, their needs, their quirks and vagaries and inherent dignity. That, that teaches us really important things about how we should treat people, period. Hmm. And that's true both on an individual and on a collective level. That's powerful. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for this conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Rebecca Epstein-Levy. You can find an excerpt from her book, When We Collide, Sex, Social Risk, and Jewish Ethics, in The Revealer's upcoming November issue at therevealer.org. And you can order a copy of When We Collide at your preferred online book vendor now. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing the role the Orthodox Church has played in Russia's war against Ukraine. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Augusta Thompson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.